1: Hello and welcome to Season 8, Episode 8 of Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Bethan, and this week it is just me again. Mark's on his holidays, he's having a lovely time, his photos look wonderful, and I'm not in the least bit jealous. Okay, no, I really am. But I also am very happy for him that he's having a nice holiday. He's had a lot going on the last few months, few weeks, few months... And so I'm hoping that this is a good way for him to de-stress and relax. So I'm sorry, guys. It is just me once again. Hopefully um, you don't hate it too much. And it will be back with the both of us next week. This week we have a case which is like something out of a film. And in fact, when I began researching it in more detail, I discovered there is indeed a film that was made about this case. So it's called Conviction and it stars people like Hilary Swank, Sam Rockwell, Minnie Driver, and Peter Gallagher, amongst others. I haven't had a chance to watch it, but if you do, please let me know how it is, because I'd love to know. And on a similar note, a lovely listener posted in our Facebook group recently about the new film Till, which is due out soon. This is going to retell the story of Emmett Till. His case was when we covered back in Season 4, in Episode 6. Emmett was a young black boy accused of being verbally abusive or inappropriate, something that offended a white woman, in Mississippi in 1955, and he was lynched for this crime, in inverted commas, because he hadn't done anything. I mean, to be honest, it still, in my opinion, would not be a crime. However, um, he even didn't do it. So it's a horrific case. It really is a horrific case. The woman even recently admitted to lying, yet nothing has happened to her. So whilst a 14-year-old boy lost his life and the chance to grow up, nothing happened to her, it's really sad and that film is going to be a hard watch i am sure before we get on with this week this week's case we would like to thank our newest patreon supporters and i'm saying we even though mark's not here with me because he absolutely is incredibly grateful to any of you who decide to support us on patreon as well as me so a huge thank you to ella jen michael chelsea leslie and i'm really sorry if i say this wrong but it's ailey i really hope that i've said your name correctly ailey mac thank you so much to all of you supporting us over on patreon and if you'd like to join us over there have a look at patreon.com forward slash seeing red podcast we talk about it a lot you know what it is if you want to join have a little look This week we're going to be focusing on Betty Ann and Kenny Waters, two of nine, yes nine siblings, growing up in the 50s and 60s in Ayer, Massachusetts. Kenny was born in 1954 and Betty in 1955. The family has been described as wild, ungovernable and are one of those families where perhaps had they been in America's deep south they'd have been seen as trailer trash. The children would steal apples from trees, they'd break into neighbouring properties, skip school, and the fathers were absent. Their mother has been described as chaotic and neglectful. To be honest, it sounds to me like she was trying to just kind of keep everyone and everything in the household above water, but that she kind of failed quite sadly and quite miserably. The children went through foster homes and a traumatic upbringing. However, Betty Ann has said that their rough childhood was what made the siblings so close, and ultimately... The mum wasn't absent from their lives, so I think that does speak a a lot. The family were no strangers to the police, often getting into trouble with the law, but Betty and Kenny did try to earn a living. By the 70s, the family had moved to Rhode Island, where the brother and sister worked in a restaurant after leaving school, although Betty Ann had actually dropped out of school a year early to do this. But Kenny soon felt that he was needed back home in Ayr and their grandfather needed someone to help take care of him, so back Kenny went. Whilst he was there, an elderly neighbour was stabbed to death during a home invasion and a robbery of her property, and of course, Kenny was a strong suspect for the police because he was known to them as a petty criminal. But soon after bringing him in for questioning, the authorities had to release him because he had one of the strongest alibis possible. Kenny had worked a night shift at the diner, and then headed straight from his shift to his next appointment in the morning where he had actually been in court facing charges of assaulting a police officer. So it couldn't have been him. He literally had been at work the whole time. He'd clocked in and clocked out, and as soon as he clocked out, he'd gone straight to court. Betty Ann later said of this, For the first time ever, I was thinking, I'm happy Kenny was in court. What a perfect alibi. Kenny was never a suspect. However... Two and a half years later, out of the blue, the family were stunned when the police arrived to arrest Kenny. Whilst he was shocked, Kenny wasn't worried. The evidence was strong. He clearly had been at work the whole night. Then he'd gone straight to court. There were no issues at all. He'd been cleared two and a half years earlier when they first tried to interview him. He told his family not to even think about hiring a private defence lawyer, because this would have started at $50,000. He knew there was no way it would go very far. It wasn't worth his family putting all that money and effort into doing this. The family rang the diner to check that the time cards were still there, and luckily, even though it had been a couple of years, they were. The police were headed over to collect them when they rang. They were so relieved. But the family didn't realise that on the investigating team, there was a secretary to the police chief, a woman who had a lack of training but was quite often given a role investigating crimes. Nancy Taylor was convinced of Kenny's guilt, and was driven by the need to solve this murder of this old woman. The trial went ahead, and there were then worse shocks in store for Kenny. Obviously not an innocent man in regards to a lot of things, absolutely a criminal in his past, but for this crime, totally 100% innocent, yet he had to sit there in court and listen, as not just one, but two ex-girlfriends lied and said that he was responsible. Brenda Marsh had been living with Kenny at the time of the murder and she was the mother of his only child. She told the court that Kenny had not gone to work that night, had not gone to court in the morning, had been out all night, returned home with scratches and blood on him and then when he'd come home he'd been drunk. She then went on to say that when the couple broke up they had a drunken row during which Kenny had confessed to her about the murder. Rosanna Perry took to the stand, telling the court how Kenny had also confessed to being the murderer to her when they had been a couple too. Can you even imagine sitting there listening to this, knowing it's totally false, and unable to do anything about it? It's just terrifying. The jury found Kenny guilty, and he was sentenced to life in prison without parole. It was 1983, and he was just 29 years old. Shortly after the conviction, Rosanna began calling Kenny's mum drunkenly at 2am, sobbing and saying how she lied and how she was really sorry. Betty Ann actually recorded this, feeling it would be really important evidence. Rosanna agreed to recant her testimony and an appeal was launched, with a signed 35-page affidavit from Rosanna stating that she had not told the truth. Surely this was all that the Waters family needed? But no. Scared of being put in jail for perjury... Rosanna said then that the affidavit was a lie and the Waters family had forced her to sign it and the recording wasn't believed. The appeal failed. Kenny, who had been so sure that the courts would be on the side of innocence, finally felt this kind of gravity of the situation and he really began to lose hope and faith. He even told Betty Ann from prison, Betty Ann, I cannot live the rest of my life in prison. I just can't do it. He even attempted suicide the brother and sister made a pact. He would not try to take his own life again if she did something in return. And before we get to what that pact was, we are going to hear from this week's show sponsor, which is BetterHelp.
0: Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and... Producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. So,
1: the pact that the siblings have made, well, it's where this like a film feeling really comes in. So he said to her, Betty Ann, if you go back to school and you become my lawyer, I know you'd get me out of here. I don't care how long it takes. So Betty-Anne didn't really think of it in such grand terms at first. For her as a mother of two, it was simply that if she enrolled in school and kept at her studies, her brother wouldn't kill himself and she'd be keeping him alive. And then maybe somewhere along the way, something could happen. And so began betty Ann's 13 years of studying. It was a real labour of love. In fact, Betty Ann's husband left her just after she passed her first degree, saying that clearly she loved her brother more than him. He felt neglected, but Betty Ann kept going. Soon, the former high school dropout enrolled in law school, whilst working nights in a bar to keep a roof over her and her son's heads. She studied five days a week for at least eight hours a day, so basically a full-time job, and then she'd head out to earn money of an evening. Sadly for her, after spending a lot of time at their father's home, Betty Ann's sons ended up living with him instead, and there was just so many sacrifices. But it was worth it. Betty Ann was finally a lawyer. During her time at law school, Betty Ann had learned about the Innocence Project, an organisation set up by Berry Sheck, which would ask courts to look at old cases again with the new edition of DNA evidence. We have talked loads over the years on this show about how DNA evidence is a relatively new science. And of course, initially, a lot of people were incredibly skeptical, just didn't understand it, a bit scared of it. Betty Ann soon realised that if she was able to get the evidence from the original crime scene and have it tested using more up-to-date methods, they'd potentially be able to get DNA that wouldn't, well, they'd potentially be able to get DNA evidence. And then they would be able to match that and show it didn't match Kenny's. Therefore, they could exonerate him. Betty Ann had confided in a friend at law school about Kenny and her reasons for studying. She'd stopped telling people ages ago, because most people kind of felt like, really, he must be guilty. The courts don't convict the innocent. And she just kind of couldn't deal with that. But this friend was totally on her side and helped her so much with this quest for justice. The two of them began calling around Boston courts, pretending they were doing research, asking the clerks for information on the evidence collected at the time of the murder. They were initially told everything had been destroyed, but finally one of the clerks finally actually checked the storeroom and they found a box. Inside the box was the murder weapon, the knife, and a scrap piece of uh, curtain which had blood on it. I mean, can you imagine that that's the only bits of evidence that are left? Absolutely shocking. Betty Ann called the Innocence Project and they agreed to support her in taking this new evidence to court, with Barry Sheck as her co-counsel. Frustratingly, it wasn't as black and white as that, so it took a while for Betty Ann to convince Kenny that DNA testing and evidence was safe. He was really nervous to have a sample taken because he felt it could be planted and used against him, which I totally understand. After all, his ex-girlfriends had even lied and called him a murderer. But he did eventually listen to Betty Ann, and they took this new evidence to court. The DNA evidence, of course, proved Kenny was innocent. And finally, in March 2001, Kenny left the court a free man. At this point, he was the 83rd prisoner in the US to be freed due to DNA evidence. So the first American who had been sentenced to death but was exonerated post-conviction by DNA testing was a guy called Kirk Noble-Bloodsworth, a former Marine who was convicted in 1985 of sexual assault, rape and first-degree premeditated murder in the 1984 case of Dawn Hamilton, a nine-year-old girl. By the time an appeal based on the DNA evidence was underway, his sentence had been commuted to two consecutive life sentences. He was released from prison in 1993, but wasn't given a full exoneration until much later, in 2004. So convicted in 1985, it was in 1992 whilst in jail that Bloodsworth read an account of how DNA testing had led to the conviction, in England, of Colin Pitchfork. This resulted in the use of DNA to gain the exoneration of an earlier suspect in the case. So hoping to prove his own innocence, Bloodsworth pushed to have the biological evidence against him tested by this new forensic technique. Initially, the available evidence in the case, which was traces of semen in the victim's underwear, which was kind of thought to be destroyed, so he kept pushing and pushing, and luckily it was actually found. Testing proved the semen did not match Bloodsworth's DNA profile, and it meant that after more than nine years in prison, he was released. In 2003, after nearly a decade after Bloodsworth's release, A prisoner DNA evidence, which was added to state and federal databases, resulted in a match to the real killer. This was a man called Kimberly Shay Ruffner, who had been sentenced to 45 years for an unrelated burglary, attempted rape, and assault with intent to murder a month after Dawn Hamilton's rape and murder. In a strange twist of fate, he had actually been incarcerated in a cell one floor below Bloodsworth's own cell, and apparently the two men actually knew each other by sight because they'd occasionally do workouts at the same time how crazy is that in light of the new dna evidence ruffner was charged in maryland for the rape and murder of the girl and finally in 2004 he pleaded guilty and was sentenced to life imprisonment and this then resulted in the full exoneration of bloodsworth in 2004 i mentioned the case just now and i could not talk about it in a bit more detail here in the uk the first person to have his innocence proven using dna evidence was richard buckland He was a local 17-year-old with learning difficulties who, whilst innocent of the crimes, was a key suspect in the murders of Linda Mann and Dawn Ashworth in 1983 and 1986 respectively. On the 21st of November 1983, 15-year-old Linda Mann took a shortcut on her way home from babysitting instead of taking her normal route. When she didn't return home, her parents and neighbours spent the night searching for her, but they found her and she was dead. She'd been raped and strangled on a deserted footpath, and using the testing techniques available at the time, police linked a semen sample taken from her body to a person with type A blood and an enzyme profile that matched only 10% of males. On the 31st of July 1986, a second 15-year-old girl, Dawn Ashworth, she left her home to visit a friend's house. Her parents expected her to return at 9.30pm, and when she didn't come home as expected, The police were alerted and they began searching for her. Two days later she was found, she'd been beaten, raped and strangled and not only was the modus operandi the same but the semen samples revealed the same blood type for Dawn's attacker as Lynn's. Now whilst Richard Buckland was innocent of both crimes he revealed knowledge of Dawn's body and admitted to her murder during questioning although he denied Lynn's murder. Luckily for him, a genetics researcher at the University of Leicester developed DNA profiling and using this technique compared semen samples from both murder victims against a blood sample from Buckland. And this conclusively proved that both girls were killed by the same man, not by Buckland. So Buckland became the first person to have his innocence established by DNA fingerprinting. The real murderer was Colin Pitchfork and he is the first person convicted of rape and murder using DNA profiling. I think we need to look at that case in so much more detail one day. It is an absolutely fascinating one, and he's a horrific, horrific person. But until then, I will point you in the direction of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast for Paul's episode about this very evil man. Back to Kenny and Betty Ann. So whilst Kenny was indeed exonerated for murder, the district attorney was not ready to give up. And they ordered a retrial, this time with Kenny charged as the accessory to murder. Betty Ann, her best friend, and Barry Sheck from the Innocence Project knew they needed to track down the ex-girlfriends and get them to tell the truth. Rosanna Perry quickly admitted she had lied back in the day, 17 years previously, though she said initially she'd said that Kenny was innocent, but the police had badgered her, showing her photos of the crime scene, saying this is what Kenny did, and consistently asking her to testify against Kenny. Eventually she did, and she said she apparently didn't realise she'd be such a key part of convicting Kenny. Brenda Marsh quickly also admitted the truth, breaking down quite fast. She said her boyfriend at the time had forced her to go through with the false testimony. She said this boyfriend had originally contacted the police offering to sell her testimony. She was terrified of perjury at the time. She kept quiet, although she knew it was all a lie. But now she knew that Kenny was free and she knew that the game was up. They signed affidavits stating that their original testimonies had been lies. Finally, it had taken 18 years but Kenny was properly free. The siblings were so happy. They went on chat shows like Oprah to tell their story. They were inspirational and were even approached by filmmakers. But for Betty Ann, clearing Kenny's name was not enough. She wanted to prove that not only had the police charged and convicted an innocent man, but that they had knowingly done so. Following Kenny's conviction, there had been a record noted in police reports which talked of fingerprint evidence that had cleared another suspect. Yet, fingerprint evidence had never been used in court, and the police had always claimed there were no usable prints at the scene. Well, which was it? Were there prints there that could clear another suspect? Or were there no prints? After seven years, Betty Ann finally tracked down the fingerprint evidence, and to cut a long story short, it basically proved that the police had not only one set of prints carrying Kenny on file that they had hidden, they had actually tested his prints twice the police had known he wasn't guilty. According to Betty Ann, Nancy Taylor, that chief secretary who had so doggedly pursued Kenny as the killer, had been instrumental in keeping this evidence hidden. And apparently she was also a key part of an investigation where a man was also exonerated by the Innocence Project, this time for a rape he didn't commit. And this guy, called Mayer, won a multi-million dollar settlement against the town of about this... In 2009, the family of Kenny won their case against the town as well. They had alleged malicious prosecution, and the suit contained charges that the police officer had coerced false testimony, withheld evidence, and done so in order to convict Kenny. Finally, the family were proven right, the court awarded them a settlement of $3.4 million, and when one of the town's insurance companies refused to settle, a judge then ordered them to pay an additional $10.7 million. But you'll notice that I said the family of Kenny, not the, not that Kenny had kind of won his case. So if you can't cope with a sad, tragic ending, please just leave the episode here. Have some happy thoughts of Free Kenny, his beloved sister, Betty Ann, sat at a picnic bench talking about their lives and their childhood dreams as the film Conviction apparently finishes. I really wasn't ready for the ending of Kenny's story myself. Six months after his release, just six months, following a dinner with his mum and his brother, Kenny decided to nip home and ask if his nieces and nephews might like some food brought back. He took a shortcut, he jumped over a fence but he tripped and he fell 15 feet onto concrete, hitting his head on the ground. He died almost a fortnight later in hospital. I just can't finish my episode there. It's just too sad. It reminds me of people like Stephen Kisco and Walter McMillian, whose cases we've also covered in the past too. Men who just didn't get to enjoy their free lives for long. It just, it breaks my heart. It's absolutely horrendous to think of. So instead, I thought I'd share some information with you about the amazing work that The Innocent Project has done and continues to do. So this is from their website. They say in their description, the Innocence Project works to free the innocent, prevent wrongful convictions and create fair, compassionable, no, compassionate and equitable systems of justice for everyone. Founded in 1992 by Barry C. Sheck and Peter J. Nuffield at the Benjamin N. Cardozo School of Law at Yeshiva University, the organisation is now an independent non-profit. Our work is guided by science and grounded in anti-racism. The Innocence Project works to restore freedom for the innocent, transform the systems responsible for their unjust incarceration, and advance the innocent movement. Their key areas are exonerating the people that are wrongly convicted, improving case law and working to pass laws and implement policies that reform the justice system, and they aim to prevent wrongful convictions. They support exonerees as they rebuild their lives, and they look to further education around DNA sciences. Their website is full of amazing case studies. It's a spe- site I spent ages reading through. They really do some amazing work. It's frustrating that they have to do it, but I'm glad that someone is. So there we go, guys. That's the story of Kenny Waters and his amazing sister, who really went above and beyond for her brother. Um, Yeah, what a crazy story. And when I first heard of it, I just kind of thought wow this is this is like something out of a film and then yep it is it's a film as well obviously um from what I can see there's a few bits in the film that have been um how should we say exaggerated or made a little bit more exciting but that's that's filmmaking isn't it it sounds like Betty Ann really worked quite closely with the filmmakers so that's really good as well so there we go thank you for listening guys really quickly wanted to plug my book which obviously was released last year and i know a lot of you bought it loads of you in fact and i'm so grateful that you did if anybody didn't manage to get a copy and they would like a copy it's coming out at the end of october 30th of october Currently, as I'm recording this, you've still got the option to get an introductory offer of £16 rather than £20. So with a discount at the moment, the new Millennium Serial Killer is available as of the 30th of October. So if you did miss out last time, you have the opportunity to purchase it again. Now it's back in print. It's going to be back in, um, in the pages. I'm so excited so excited to see what it's going to be like because it's a new publisher so we've got a new cover art there's a few changes have been made as well one of the cases um quite happily has actually been solved since we put it into the book the first time round so Caroline's story is no longer in the book because her case has been solved not Christopher Hallowell, so we were wrong on that aspect but really really pleased for her family that they've got some answers so it's basically. Taxi driver Christopher Halliwell, convicted of two murders, we reckon guilty of numerous others. And it's a collection of stories of the women and the cases that we think he could be responsible for. We're not saying he definitely is, we're not saying we know anything, but we're just saying potentially there is the chance. It has a foreword by former Detective Superintendent Steve Vulture So, you may know that name from his quite high profile dealings in this case and some of the things that he went through. And it really is us kind of seeking some answers, seeking some justice, and wanting the police to look into this in a bit more detail. So, please do check it out if you're interested. Head to Pen and Sword Books and just search for the new Millennium Serial Killer or for my name, and it will come up. And it's still a little bit of time left for you to get it at a discounted price. Please do take a look at our show sponsor if you're interested. Betterhelp.com forward slash red. Let me just check I got that right. It's not .co.uk. It is .com. And thanks for listening. I'll be back next week with Mark. So see you then. Bye-bye.